Hello and welcome. My name is Mark Blatstein, physician founder of Physician Pre-Sentence Report Service. Today we're on with uh, with John Tickle, an attorney in Dallas, Texas, who really comes recommended with 20 years experience in both federal and state courts from the prosecutor and the federal side, which is an, an amazing combination. What I find, at least what hits, hits me, as very, being also very important is that he has a reputation for compassion because most people when they're entering this really just don't know what to do. He's been listed as best attorneys of America, global who's who, top attorney, lawyers of distinction, National Association of Distinguished Counsels, top 1% and super lawyers for 15 years. He's been highlighted in Forbes and Time. So you really have a litany of experience from computer crimes, drugs, federal prosecutions of fraud, guns, you name it, healthcare, SEC tax. There's a lot here. So I suppose to start, between federal and state cases, I guess, how do you approach them or how are they different or how are their clients different? How are they handled in court? Well, first of all, thank you, Mark, for having me. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, as you said, I've I've been uh, 20 years in private practice since I left the government, state prosecutor for a few years, federal prosecutor for uh, over a dozen years. And um, in regard to the difference between the federal and state, there's a there's a big difference. I know things that we're talking about, I know you know, but I'm I'm speaking for the benefit of those who would be listening. Generally, just very generally, uh, the difference between the federal prosecutions and state criminal prosecutions is state prosecutions mostly focus on what I would call street crime or reactive crimes, robbery, shootings, uh, stolen credit cards, smaller thefts, prostitution, things like that. Uh, federal cases, federal criminal cases take longer by definition, by nature, by design to investigate and prosecute. They're larger. And the two very basic categories that the U.S. Attorney's Offices and the Department of Justice prosecute are significant white-collar cases, which covers a lot of things. Fraud is a lot of that. And then large, very large drug trafficking cases. So they take longer. Uh, the federal system is more of, a, more of a formal system than the state system. It is and can be a harsher system than the state system because of the sentencing guidelines, which do not exist in the state court. This may not be a fair question, but how do federal prisons for the life of the for the person who's going to be incarcerated? There's so many different states, and each state has, I guess, their own laws on how they run their individual prisons. Is it possible to kind of somehow distinguish what life is like in a federal versus state facility? Well, I think the 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 perception and the reputation that state prisons have versus federal are that the state prisons are usually a place where there's less organization from the uh, from the employees from from the officials uh, meaning uh, it's a rowdier place um, it could be subject to being harmed uh, within uh, in a place like that more so than the federal. I'm not saying that's true across the board. I, th I believe that's the reputation and, and the thought process for a lot of people. Federally, you do have 
different levels. You have what's called a camp sometimes or the minimum security where people who are nonviolent uh, offenders, first-time offenders, nonviolent, uh, don't have any criminal history, no violence in the background, no national security issues, et cetera, can go there. They have more freedom, so to speak, to be able to work within the system. You might even be a driver coming in and out. And you have medium facilities, which a lot of them are. And then you have uh, just a handful of, uh, of maximum security where they're basically locked down. So most of the people would be in medium or minimum security um those are those are some general thoughts about the differences or the, at least the perception of the differences in those so we talked a little bit on a couple topics and let's try and dive into them the sentencing guidelines there there's been new amendments for them but if you could explain it so that the viewer who's listening hasn't gone to law school hasn't gone to med school for the most part they're just they're just deer in headlights, or they're becoming newly familiar with these guidelines. Yes, as, as you indicated, you've got um, the sentencing guidelines in the federal system, unlike the state system. And it's basically a, a what you'd call a point system. In other words, the more points you get, the higher the imprisonment recommendation range is. Now, the judge, the federal judge who does the sentencing does not have to stay in that sentencing range, but he's got to have an articulable reason, a specific reason to put on the record to vary down or come down off of that. For, and as we indicated, it can the federal system can be, be very harsh. In other words, it's um, very, very, in drug trafficking cases, the more quantity, the higher, the, the, the more points you get, and they um, go up very quick on uh, drug trafficking cases. White collar cases, generally speaking, don't go up as quickly as drug trafficking cases. However, when you get into the millions of dollars of losses, and then if you're an organizer leader, you get some points added for that. If uh, it was considered a sophisticated type operation, you get some points for that, and so on and so forth. There's there's so many victims involved, you get points added. If they're targeting elderly, you get points added. So um, it's not unusual, not unusual, say, for someone to, to score out, so to speak, on the sentencing guidelines with a recommended range in a drug trafficking case of literally, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, uh, even if the quantities were not huge, what we might consider huge. Now in the federal system, there's no parole. Um, you do get credit for a little bit of credit for good time, but that that's about it. Uh, white collar case, you might be looking at anywhere from five, six, seven years, could be 10, 12 years if it's in the millions of dollars and, you had some other points. But as another example, on the other side, say you made a false statement for your own passport application and you weren't trafficking in those, you might be looking at uh, your your recommended range might be zero to six months or, you know, eight to, to 12 months, eight to 10 months, something like that. And you could be, uh, which is the exception in the federal system, might walk away with probation. What could this? What could the dependent or your client do to help themselves as you prepare for what's known as the pre-sentence interview, so that it'll give you some more to work with to help mitigate some of those numbers or mitigate a sentence? 
Well, if a person is found guilty at, at trial or even if they plead guilty pursuant to an agreement, as you've indicated, they'll go through the the pre-sentence process, which involves an interview with uh, the probation officer who's writing it up, but also there'll be other information, their family ties to the community, history, criminal history. Do they have any physical or mental um, history, any ailments more than just, well, I'm on medication or um, more than I was just depressed one time. If you have those kind of things, and certainly you want to have those emphasized or come out, if you have a situation where you have unique um, uh, unique set of circumstances, anything like that could be the basis for a, a variance from, from the sentencing, which the judge may or may not come down on. Now, uh, to prepare a client for that, I mean... If it is an agreement case and you've, your client's decided it's an agreement case, cut your losses, try to get your reduction as much as possible, as opposed to gearing up for trial, then to me, the the mitigation process or the, or the reduction, the preparing for sentencing sort of starts when you're trying to negotiate with the U.S. attorney as far as, say, the loss amount, the, you know, was this person uh, a, a person with some management authority or not? Does he ha does he can you keep those points off of him? Can you keep any other points off of him? It might be enhancement points. And then as far as the actual uh, factors that that could be the basis for reduction, you need to make sure that you understand what what the, the client's history is. And if he, for example, suffered abuse as a child, that might be something that uh, the court could take into consideration along with other things. Does he have a special needs child that only his wife at home and nobody else is around to help, that could be a factor. And, and I've seen that happen. Switch gears a little bit. You brought up computers have facilitated crimes. And as we were talking before we started to record, I found it pretty interesting. Explain computers, crimes, and <clears throat> what can evolve out of that. Because it seems to be a plethora of other charges or crimes or things that could happen. Well, yeah, you're correct. Uh, there are more of not only com computer crime prosecutions per se, but there are the use of computers that facilitate other frauds, other other crimes. Now, for the last what, 20, 15, 20 years, especially the last dozen or so, you're seeing more prosecutions for computer intrusion and exceeding a, an authority to to get into a computer or a computer network. Those are both um, real uh, statutes federally and, and that are used, but also one of the other ones you're seeing is cyber stalking. Uh, it uh, not only uh, includes threats or putting someone in some sort of fear of harm, but also it includes just a lesser conduct uh, such as intimidating the person or harassing the person. So if you do that by an electronic or computer type means, then you could be subject to being investigated or prosecuted for, for what's referred to as cyber stalking. So you're seeing more of that itself, but also in the broader picture is you're seeing the use of computers to facilitate fraud schemes and uh, to kind of um, uh, fuel a resurgence of some schemes that you've seen or haven't seen have seen in the past, but this is really amping them up. I think one of the examples we were talking about was the uh, 
fraudulent refund schemes. That that's a good example of what we're talking about. That's crazy. The um another thing you brought up was people using other people's accounts for money transfers, which I don't know if that if if there's being done knowingly or unknowingly, I don't even know if those are options, but it, it definitely seems problematic. Well, you, that's another trend. Another thing you've seen the last few years, and uh, you're seeing more federal prosecutions of that, that uh, basically comes down to money laundering. It could be charged as bank fraud. It could be charged in other ways, conspiracy to commit fraud um, or all the above. But you're seeing more situations where uh, perpetrators of, of fraudulent acts will will um, obtain tainted funds, whether <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's an insurance fraud scheme, whether it's stolen treasury checks, whether it's whatever, and then they'll go to a person, whether he's complicit or whether he's a victim, and say, "I need to use your account. We want to deposit money, and then have you turn around and wire the money out." and then wired here or wired, send it to Bitcoin or send it to a foreign account. And of course, the people who are doing that or the, the launderers are doing that to keep their name off of it and to hide their involvement. And because the account, like a bank account, is in someone else's name. Now, you do have situations where I believe that some of the people who are using their account or letting others use their accounts uh, are, are victims because they either are just gullible enough to let that happen or don't fully realize how many transactions these people make or want to make until they get into it. Uh, these people are sometimes referred to as money mules because they are, they are uh, moving or carrying money for someone. So you're seeing more of that and you're seeing more federal prosecutions of those things. Wow. <clears throat> Let's try and go into identity crimes seem to be prevalent i know that i mean i've where i've had emails come in to me and i have to i'll forward them to my it guy because i don't know if they're real or not real and you know and backtracking a little bit to the to these money transmissions i mean i remember a couple times over the past couple of years where somebody in nigeria gets my phone number and says or gets my email address and they want money sent and I'm just like shaking my head. So let's try and touch on those couple things. Well, you're still seeing those kind of things where people will just sort of overtly put out something and ask for money. And those to me were kind of a, we've seen those for several years now, but to me, those were forerunners of some of the money mule, um, uh, illicit uh, fraudulent money transfers that we're seeing today, like we talked about just a moment ago where you'll have people who are the known perpetrators go to others and often they'll try to target people that uh, they think are gullible or give them some story about how they're from the U S but I'm a, I'm in a foreign country and they've shut down my bank account. Um, I need to get this money in to send it to my brother or my father, who's getting ready to have an operation and, they might give them a sob story and some people will, will fall for that. Um, I think it's a probably a smaller percent that do than don't, but then you have others you have to decide or somebody has to ultimately decide were they just part of the conspiracy. Now, I do believe, as I said a moment ago, that there are some people who are gullible and fall into that. And I think after a while, 
<clears throat> it becomes more apparent. In other words, if, you know, after one or two wire transfers, they get paid little or nothing to do it, then all of a sudden they see a bunch of deposits that weren't even spoken about with the person who recruited them. And then they're going, well, you want me to wire, turn around and wire this out to, to some country in Africa or some country somewhere else or, or convert this to Bitcoin. So you have those situations that are real and you have people that, that are uh, engaged in fraudulent activities. And then you have some that need to be weeded out as to whether or not they're truly a, a knowing money mule or not. The topic that we're all reading about today is, I guess, alien transport or people coming into the country in some shape or form. What is your definition of that? And how does that cross your desk? Well, as you said, we're seeing more of those because there's just been a, a continued influx of uh, people who um, are deemed to be illegal aliens or illegal immigrants uh, coming across our border, namely our southern border, um, Texas and other states. But the there are a number of federal statutes that have been, that have been in place for a while. As you know, of course, the years ago, the U.S. Attorney's offices prosecuted uh, people for um, re-entry into the U.S. after being deported, and then for 15, 20 years, you or a number of years, you haven't seen it you've seen a few recently but not many but i mean that was that was um a common thing that happened years ago as far as prosecutions you're seeing an influx of people so you're seeing agencies at the border and uh state officers state agencies as well um, involved in stopping people who are not citizens and then especially people who are recruited to pick those people up, the the illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, and give them a, the ride to a designated location, and then the people who are who agree to do that are usually either given a little bit of money and promised uh, more money down the line, or they're just promised money if they take two, three, four, five people from near the border at a, at a certain location to where they are supposed to be. For example, you'll a lot of times you'll you'll find cases where people were um, directed to take uh, these these uh, people they're transporting to San Antonio, Texas. And that seems to be a place where a lot of them are, are, are destined for, and then from there they go wherever. But you'll have, you have federal prosecutions of those, but we're also seeing that there's so many of those that the states, the district attorney's offices, um, in South Texas, as an example, are picking up those cases and, and filing those as similar charges in state court. Wow. <clears throat> Changing direction. Thinking back to past state or federal cases, can you pick out one that you unexpectedly got a, a great outcome and... What type of case was it? Was it, it was unexpected, and you and the, your client was tickled, but the outcome you got was a lot. You were managed to have a great outcome as opposed to not, either state or federal. Well, um, over the years, I've had a number of cases where or investigations that we've gotten killed, so to speak, or stopped with no action against the client. Of course, that would be the ultimate, but. I'm thinking of um, a couple more recently where 
Uh, we had, uh, after a long period of time, uh, dealing with the U.S. attorney and trying to convince them my client was not a part of the the uh, tax fraud that was ongoing, uh, we began trial. Anyway, long and the short of it, you fast forward, um, he, he decided not to go to trial, pled guilty, and got probation, whereas the sentencing guidelines recommended X for or a range of X. Uh, had another one where... A client um, in a fraud conspiracy was seriously considering going to trial, but the client, um, she was looking at 90-something to 100-something months guidelines-wise because of a number of factors, um, got some, some credit, of course, for pleading guilty, decided to do that, cut the losses rather than go to trial, walked away with a 24-month sentence. Wow. So... That was a um, very significant reduction. Those are a couple that come to my mind right now. So not everybody in the U.S., because you practice federal as nationwide, is going to be lucky enough to cross your path. What, how do you advise, how would you advise someone who, you know, has already either had the target, been found, they know that they're going to be in trouble in some shape or form. How do they go about identifying and questions they should, ask an attorney to see if it's a good fit or that that attorney will work well with them. Well, if you're, if you're talking about, generally speaking, I'd say this about federal or state, either one, especially federal, because if you either learn officially, there's an, a, um, an investigation in which uh, the, the client or potential client is involved, or you hear about it, they hear about it because other people call them and say, Agents were coming around asking about you, et cetera. The best thing you can do is to get in and try to ascertain early, get in early, ascertain, find out what the allegations more specifically are. In other words, if it's, you know, early on, you just may be told, well, I'd say an insurance uh, fraud scheme. And then we believe he was part of the conspiracy. Well, if you get in, with the U.S. attorney, try to learn specifically what that person did, what his role was, and then back and forth between the client and the prosecutor's office to find out, did you come in early? Did you come in late to the to the conspiracy that they're alleging? Did you have a minor role, et cetera, et cetera? And try to learn as much as you can and then uh, stay abreast of it, stay abreast of the prosecution's timetable to the extent that you can. And if you have something to to push back on, as I say, to show the the investigators and the prosecutor's office that they're off base here, here, and there, then get in, show them, convince them of that. And if you can make the the investigation go away with no action, terrific. If it's a situation where the client was um, uh, is uh, is um, going to be uh, charged anyway, or charged for his participation, even if it's a lesser amount, then you'll at least you will at least know what's coming at him and presumably, hopefully you will at least have, have uh, lessened what's coming at him because of what you can show the prosecutor as to what he did or did not do. Federal and or state prosecutors, are they both equally receptive to that form of, I guess, advocacy on your part or the attorney's part? Not as much in the, in the state system. Because that what I've just described is is much more of a uh, a federal process, and they're used to that. 
and they do a more involved, lengthier, um, theoretically a a more in-depth investigation than, say, a robbery or some other charge at the state level where a lot of times it's, it's a reaction to a crime or, uh, frankly, their, their supervisors are, are the investigators' supervisors probably having them try to wrap it up as quickly as possible, get their information to the district attorney so they can move on to the next thing. So the federal system is more geared for what we just described as as getting in um, early on the investigation process. But to some extent, you can do it depending on what the allegations are. For example, in state court, you may have, uh, like in Texas, an engaging in organized criminal activity, which is basically the state's version of a federal conspiracy. If you have something like that, um, that generally will take longer than, um, say, a stolen credit card or possession of some illegal substance or possessing someone's identifying identifying information. So to some extent, depending on the circumstances, you can get in and do that on the state level. Wow. Well, John, I want to I'm grateful for you taking the time to uh, meet with us and speak to our listeners today. Should you have a problem, if on the federal side, you can be anywhere in the country reach out to John and last words, my friend. I appreciate you and thank you for allowing me to, to speak. And like you said, I um, can, uh, I'll be glad to talk to anybody about their federal matter. And I know that you have a, um, uh, a on an, an ongoing practice in this area as far as mitigation. And I appreciate that. And I know people can reach out to you as well. Okay. And I'll have all the information to get in touch with you. It'll be available on this video. Have a good day and stay safe. Thank you, sir.